Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Home Practice with Hallie. I'm your host, Hallie Miraglada, here with the mission to make the tools of yoga more accessible to all bodies, no matter where in the world you make your home. Last week, I introduced the eight-limbed path of yoga philosophy, as outlined in the Yoga Sutras. The first limb is called the Yamas, and contains the moral restraints, or abstentions, recommended by the system of yoga. Practicing these five values of non-harming, truthfulness, non-stealing, right use of energy, and non-hoarding are intended to eradicate negative qualities within one's own life. How did that reflection feel? Did anything come up for you? Remember, you can always reach out to me directly with questions, comments, feedback, or to share your experiences, either through the Anchor app or on Instagram at H-A-L-L-E-Y-O-G-A Halley Yoga. In today's episode, we'll continue this conversation on philosophy by examining the second limb of the eight-limbed path of yoga, which is called the Niyamas. The niyamas are moral observances, or recommendations intended to foster positive qualities. Like last time, if you tend to enjoy processing through journaling, I will offer you some time for reflection, and you're welcome to take notes. Or you can also simply listen and digest this information in your own way. I know that sometimes this content can be tough, and that I'll ask hard questions that might feel personally challenging, But I'm not judging you for your realizations, because I'm right there on the path with you. But I am asking you to step up, to do the work, and, where applicable, to do better. You ready? Let's dig in. The first of the niyamas, or observances, is called saucha. Saucha is a Sanskrit word that generally translates into cleanliness or purity. This does apply to the most basic level in terms of keeping your body and your environment clean and pure. Providing this care to the physical helps to keep the mind less cluttered, as the body and the mind are intrinsically related. But saucha, cleanliness, also asks us to make careful choices about what we watch, read, and listen to. We can practice selective input. Seeing too much violent imagery or becoming desensitized to repetitive trauma, like in the daily news cycle, or taking in a lot of information that propagates harm or bias creates an indigestion of the mind, So practicing cleanliness could just mean creating mental space away from that constant negative stimulus in order to digest, to process, and to heal, whether it is through a meditation or breathing practice or through self-care like physical movement or healthy self-expression. Practicing saucha also asks us to consider the toxic qualities that may feel ever-present in our modern lives, such as pesticides that are sprayed on our fruits and vegetables, artificial hormones, harmful chemicals in our skincare products or sunscreens, and poor air quality. In an even bigger sense, being guided by the value of saucha 
asks us to care about cities like Flint, Michigan, whose residents have been provided with poisoned drinking water since 2014. It asks us to care about food deserts, which are areas that have little to no access to fresh food or supermarkets, like in the south side of Chicago or Camden, New Jersey. Can you imagine trying to practice purity of mind when your only consistent food options are frozen pizza or chips from the gas station? And it's not a coincidence that these injustices are rarely imposed on affluent neighborhoods. If you live a life that is not directly affected by these environmental factors, are you willing to turn your focus outward toward others? Sometimes practicing cleanliness might mean voting for politicians who are willing to fight the policies that trash the environment or reinforce segregation. Sometimes it means donating to organizations that are dedicated to natural conservancy, or even just doing your part in appropriately managing your waste. Take a few moments for personal reflection to consider the role of saucha, cleanliness, purity, in your life. What is your relationship to cleanliness in your personal environment? How do you practice purity for your body? What do you eat? Do you rely on the use of drugs or alcohol to manage your day? Are you willing to speak up when you see others littering, creating unnecessary waste, or otherwise damaging the environment? Are you sometimes the person littering? Do you ever make your environment less clean with an attitude of negativity or complaint? When you do charitable giving, are you willing to direct some of your efforts toward organizations that provide better resources to underserved areas? Do you consider environmental policies when you choose your candidate in local elections? And what does cleanliness or purity of mind, body, and environment mean to you? Take the next few moments to either jot down some notes or sit with yourself to mentally process these questions and the information related to Saucha cleanliness. The second of these niyamas is called santosha, which roughly translates into contentedness, acceptance, or satisfaction. This one was hard for me to understand at first because I somehow associated being content with being complacent or lazy, but they are not the same thing. Santosha and contentedness is about accepting life as it is, rather than trying to force perfection. It's a practice of gratitude for what you do have, rather than an act of desperation for what you don't. Sometimes when I think of the ways society expresses its superficial discontent, I think of the cosmetics industry, which as recently as two years ago, in 2017, was valued at $532 billion globally. We spend so much time, effort, and money trying to change who we are 
motivated by a sense of comparison or contrast, and a desire to fit into standards that may not apply to us. We don't have that much control over what life throws at us, but the practice of Santosha asks us to be welcoming to what we get. It means learning to love yourself and your life, even if your experience is different than your neighbor's. It means letting go of the parts of your internal monologue that consistently tell you, I'm not good enough, I'm too much of this, or not enough of that. When we release ourselves from constantly wishing our situation was different, we will find more ease in mind, body, and spirit, because life will be less of a fight. And this release of the attachment to the outcome is not the same thing as being fatalistic or resigning yourself to something you don't like. It's not the same as saying that you can't change your reality. You sure can. Like, if you want to learn a new skill, learn that skill. If you want to change your physical habits, change your physical habits. If you want to level up and change your life, you can. You're not stuck. But practicing contentment will ask you to let go of your war against reality. Doing this successfully will make you more effective in implementing the changes you truly wish to see. This is such a silly example, but when I was younger, I really wanted to have curly hair, and I made my mom put my hair into little curlers or these little tight bobby pin wraps the night before so that I could pretend that I had curly hair at school. (laughs) It's obviously fine to curl your hair or even to make big changes to your physical appearance, but is maintaining the outward illusion of these changes worth hundreds of hours of your life? Let's take a few moments here for some personal reflection. What is preventing you from feeling content or satisfied with your life? Do you often fall into the trap of comparison? Are the changes you desire motivated by what you think other people want for you or by what you want for you? Are the shifts that you wish to implement distractions from or steps toward creating a deeper, more fulfilling relationship with yourself? Does the desire for something in your life to be different detract from your ability to appreciate what you have? And how can you create a sense of internal satisfaction that does not rely on external objects or relationships? Take a few moments in reflection to breathe and to sit with the subject of contentment, acceptance, and personal satisfaction. The third of these niyamas, or observances, is called tapas. This word is different than the tiny, spicy Spanish finger foods called tapas, but that association might actually help you to remember this one, as tapas, in this case, translates into discipline, austerity, or the cultivation of the internal heat, or spiciness, necessary to create great change. Tapas, or discipline, 
always works with overriding an impulse. It's the path of ridding yourself from craving, of doing without indulgences, or in strengthening the mind. It's also a willingness to show up and do the work, of having enthusiasm for your personal growth, a burning desire to learn, especially when it is challenging. It is the practice of restraint, of perhaps eating less but chewing more. And we can apply the heat of dedication to anything we want to see grow in our lives. Perhaps you're trying to learn a new instrument or speak a new language or improve your personal nutrition, cultivate a better attitude, or maybe commit to your yoga practice. When you make a commitment to an action and you perform it daily, this is tapas. Even if you only have 10 minutes, you can make that time sacred. When you get up early to dedicate yourself to your goals, that's tapas. If you speak your truth even when it's challenging, that is tapas. This dedication, discipline, heat means accepting some of the pain that life gives us because we know that today's hardship is tomorrow's convenience. Meditation practice is tapas because it requires strength to constantly bring the mind back to a state of attention. I'm trying to learn to be a better dancer right now, and even though I feel like an idiot sometimes, I keep showing up to the class anyways. Any commitment to your growth in the face of obstacles is tapas. However, it is important to note that for some people, hardship itself is an addiction. Like, if you never go to the gym, working out might be a form of cultivating discipline for you. But if you live at the gym because you're avoiding dealing with something at home, tapas for you might be to go home and handle your life in a courageous and compassionate way. So the way this manifests is different for everyone. Also, choosing to do without a favorite indulgence is not the same thing as dieting or withholding from yourself in a negative way like telling yourself you can't have something because you don't deserve it because you're not good enough. All these forms of discipline and dedication must be done with a compassionate, loving eye toward your personal growth, toward releasing the attachment to having something in one's life so that you can experience more freedom. For example, it's nice to have chocolate. (laughs) For me, it's super nice to have chocolate. But if eating chocolate is such a requirement to your life that the absence of it causes you suffering, it's time to practice some tapas around chocolate so that you don't have to rely on external things to bring you happiness. If you somehow don't care about chocolate, replace that word with the addiction of your choice like alcohol or weed or coffee or working out or whatever And you'll start to see what it means to withdraw from habit, basically creating intentional choices in your life of sitting with your heart when your interests are not being satisfied is part of cultivating this heat. And you might know that feeling of friction well. 
by practicing a little bit of discipline in a daily way, you can train yourself so that when situations arise which truly require great strength, you are not easily influenced. Let's take a few moments for a little bit of reflection. How do you practice tapas or discipline in your own life? What are the little ways you challenge yourself to withdraw from impulse? What are the challenges associated with this process? And in what ways do you choose to find support? And what does the alternative look like to be truly free from cravings? How do you apply your discipline in a meaningful way toward a new goal or skill? Take a few moments here to pause, to breathe into it, and to reflect. The fourth of these niyamas is called svadhyaya. This Sanskrit word broadly translates into self-study and introspection, but includes reading the texts of teachers and sages in order to examine our reactions. Svadhyaya invites us into the depths of self-inquiry by acknowledging the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, by considering what we think we can and cannot do, by observing our implicit biases and the colored lens through which we see the world, and noticing what value we place on our perceived skills and limitations. We are wrapped up in layers and layers of conditioning, thoughts, emotions, socialization, and experiences that hide our deepest selves. Our true identity may be lost in a cloud of trauma, fears, judgments, desire, gender, race, or religion. Think of a single light bulb that is covered by dozens and dozens of lampshades. The process of self-inquiry involves taking off the lampshades one at a time in order to reveal the light that has always been present but obscured underneath it all. This niyama calls us to ask ourselves, who am I really? And to explore the answer again and again. It asks us to step away from hiding behind the veils of our personal identity, of hiding behind what we own, what we do for work, or our lived experiences. Do you identify yourself by your problems? And who are you without those identifications? For example, I used to identify myself by a particular trauma that occurred to me about 10 years ago. When I thought of who I was, I thought of myself in terms of this event. When I wondered why I acted or reacted in a certain way toward others, I told myself it was because of this circumstance. But really, I am not that event. I am more than my experience there. 
In fact, I was using that experience as a justification, as an excuse for staying the same. Only when we can be who we truly are to ourselves, flaws and all, can we present ourselves authentically to others. And this is a personal and unending process of growth. In fact, all of the questions I've asked you so far today have been part of your personal reflection, self-study, and self-inquiry. So how do you practice self-study? Do you like to journal or make art? What are the processes through which you liberate yourself from your attachment to your experiences and the events of your life? Are there any experiences that you are hiding behind or using as a reason for why you cannot grow? And what would the alternative look like to be who you truly are without fear of judgment? or shame. Take a few moments to breathe deeply into the true reality of yourself as you are underneath it all. The fifth and final of these niyamas is called Ishvara Pranidhana, which is comprised of two Sanskrit words. The first, Ishvara, means personal or supreme God. Pranidhana means to devote, to dedicate, or to surrender. Together, these two words more or less indicate the importance of being devoted and dedicated to something greater than yourself. A teacher described this niyama to me once as being the highest concept that a human mind can know or the highest possibility that a human heart can love. It is the surrender of the personal ego toward the divine cosmic consciousness. It means saying, yes, everyone is friends with me and mine. It is an acknowledgement that you and your life are not the most important things in the universe. Practicing this niyama helps to redirect energy away from our own personal dramas and sufferings and toward a sense of compassion and union with the rest of humanity. Beautifully, this recommendation does not demand that you follow any particular religion or creed or even that you follow any of them at all, but rather it asks you to honor the divine in the way that it most closely speaks to your heart. Perhaps for you, communication with the divine occurs through being a steward to nature or through acts of selfless service toward your community. Maybe for you, it is in the language of prayer to your God, whether you are Jewish, Hindu, Christian, Sikh, Buddhist, Muslim, or Zoroastrian. And since we all have to sort things out for ourselves within our own cultures, a major part of this value is that you don't get to decide what's right for others. We all have our own names for what connects us to God. Let's take a moment for personal reflection here. 
In what ways do you dedicate your life to something bigger than yourself? What makes you feel connected to the magic in the universe? Do you ever feel morally superior to or pass judgments on those who have a different belief system than you? Do you ever try to impose your beliefs on others rather than appreciating and learning all the different names of God? How do you choose to spiritualize or not your life on a daily basis? And how do your spiritual practices create a better world for those around you, regardless of whether or not they share your belief system? Take a few moments to breathe into the depth of these questions and pause in reflection. Before we close out this episode, stick around for a quick word from one of my sponsors. To review, the five niyamas, or moral observances, we discussed here today are cleanliness, or purity, contentedness, or satisfaction, discipline, self-study, and devotion to something greater than yourself. If you are still listening at this point in the episode, thank you for tuning in and for choosing to show up for your growth and your personal evolution. Your homework this week is twofold. First, please continue your reflections and further examine how these qualities show up in your life. And second, please review the technique of alternate nostril breathing that I introduced in episode six, as we will be refining and deepening the technique in next week's episode. As always, drink water, stay relaxed, and I look forward to hearing from you soon.